0: Hi, it's Tom Panneries, and I want to come on at the top of the show here to say that this is one of a series of episodes that will cover the events of September 11th, 2001, along with the pop culture about it. Though These events are now 20 years in the past, they are still traumatizing to many, and I wanted to give you a heads up that listener discretion is advised. If you choose to listen and have thoughts, comments, or points you'd like to make, I would love to hear your feedback. Send me an email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Comment on the Facebook post at slash popcultureaffidavit or find me on Twitter at popaff. That's P O P A F F. At last, I get onto the bridge. Automatically, without thinking, I turn to see the skyline stretching away on the left. The skyline is gone. The Empire State Building is dark. The World Trade Towers have disappeared. The lights below 14th Street have gone out. Nothing moves or sparkles. The occupied city is dark except for a necklace of EMS lights, and the slow, steady, sorrowing plume of ash wending its way down into the harbor and my mind wakes up. I imagine the screams of the dead from which the scream of the building protected me before. I hear the evenness my father willed into his voice, hear Don telling me hesitantly, well, take good care, Sarah. I feel the hole in the city as a hole out of my chest and head. Thousands burned and crashed and orphaned and ruined and dead. I merge onto I-95 South and I cry. Great whooping, moaning sobs, strangling me, fighting to get out of my throat and go nowhere except back into my ears. I clutch the wheel to keep it straight, signaling, getting left, barreling onto the ramp for I-78 West, driving home as I've done a thousand times before, and I cry and cry and cry. Near Hillside, I stop crying. I don't feel better, but I stop crying. On the radio, the president refers to the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for thou art with us. The president is wrong. I fear evil. No rod or staff can comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy have turned their backs on all of us today. I have no interest in the house of the Lord. I come up the driveway, home. My mother stands in the doorway waiting for me, and with the light behind her, she looks small. The house itself seems small and weak. Everything seems small and weak. I have come home, but the story is just starting, and I don't know that I can tell it right. Telling a story is all I have, all I have ever had to give. The telling used to seem important and strong. A story used to seem powerful, and now it's really nothing at all just paper in the end, easily burnt and blown away. there's any one piece I come back to every year on September 11th, it's Sarah Bunting's essay, For Thou Art With Us, of which I just read the last four paragraphs. Originally posted to her blog, Tomato Nation, on September 14th, 2001, it's a visceral account of her experience in Lower Manhattan on the morning of September 11th an account of an experience that never fully leaves anyone who reads it, no matter how many years it has been since the attacks on that day. The mood that is captured in this excerpt reflects the mood that so many of us were actually feeling in the few days following. You certainly never actually want to relive a traumatic event, but what Bunting does in this essay is what I feel I need whenever September comes around each year. She reminds me of the rawness I felt that day and the days after, how processing all of it took time and emotion on a level that I had not felt in a long time and would not feel for a long time after. It's a feeling, quite frankly, that we seem to have forgotten. This is the first episode in a six-episode series about 9-11 and pop culture, brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries. What I want to do over the course of these six episodes is examine the books, movies, music, comics, and other popular culture that directly addresses or is about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Each episode is going to focus on a different medium. and I'm going to spend some time reviewing them as well as evaluating their effectiveness and capturing the moments and the feelings of the day. We use our culture to both memorialize and interpret events. With 20 years gone since that day, it's time we look at whether or not those pieces accomplished what they set out to do. Now, I will tell you up front that I'm not going to be able to talk about every single piece of popular culture that is about 9-11, and I will mostly stick to what I've read, watched, or listened to, or what had any sort of effect on me. So there will be a lot that I do not talk about, and you are welcome to let me know what I might be missing. But keep in mind that even though I'm going for some talk about history and popular culture here, I'm also going to speak from a very personal place, and that means that some of my preferences and biases might be on display. I think I'll also take you to a moment to tell you that while I'll be getting into people's visions, interpretations, or fictionalizations of 9-11, I will not be getting into anything regarding conspiracies. I personally find them, 9-11 trutherism and everything else associated with it to be morally repugnant. Moreover, in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the events of the day and nonfiction accounts, and I'm going on the idea that things happened as we witnessed or as has been concluded. And I'm going to be starting off with those facts, giving a timeline and some basic statistics about what happened in order to establish what I'll be spending the next six episodes discussing. Right now we've got Sean Murtaugh, he is a CNN producer, on the telephone right now. Sean, what can you tell us about what you know? This is Sean Murtaugh. CD. (laughs) (laughs) uh, thank you very much. If a football hero accused of murder is news for months, if every Capitol Hill Hill scandal merits weeks of coverage, How much attention do two and a half million dead Uh, merit? It's a story we we should have brought you you long ago. This week on Nightline, we'd like to make up for that by finally telling you about the beauty and the tragedy of Congo. Three years, two and a half million dead. We thought you should know. What kind of plane? Was it a small plane? a, a jet. Was a, uh, was a jet. Uh, we want like to tell you what we know jet. as we know it. but uh, We just got a report in, in that there's been some sort of we're explosion Laura, at the World Trade Roger. Center Roger, in, Roger, in New York City. And where were you when you saw one report she's said, a, said and we a, can't confirm car, any of this, that a plane did, may have hit one of the two towers of the World Trade Center. But again, you're seeing the live pictures here. We have no further details than that. We don't know anything about What they have concluded happened there this morning, but we're going to find out and, of course, make sure that everybody knows on the end. These are, of course, the two twin trade center buildings that are down at the foot of Manhattan. They really are the beacons of New York. It was there that there was the explosion a couple of years ago. So what you just heard is a portion of a documentary called Recorder, the Marion Stokes Project. It's a fascinating documentary about Marion Stokes, who was a civil rights activist that taped decades worth of television news footage, much of which helped establish the video archive of the Internet Archive. I highly recommend checking it out, and I use it here because it's a succinct example of the surprise of the events of the day. I'll get into what the 9-11 Commission report says about missed opportunities and unheeded warnings in the intelligence community later on, but the general public did not see this coming and was instead focused on stories such as the New York City mayoral election, and the search for Chandra Levy, a congressional intern who had gone missing in Washington, D.C.'s Rock Creek Park that summer, and his, whose disappearance revealed an affair she had been having with her boss, Congressman Gary Condit. Both of those stories would get pushed further back into public consciousness as a result of that morning, as 19 terrorists hijacked four transcontinental flights, crashing two of them into each of the Twin Towers in New York City, a third into the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and a fourth that was supposedly bound for the Capitol building, or the White House, but would be brought down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, by passengers who fought the hijackers. The attacks and the major events of the day all happened between 8.46 and 10.02 a.m., which is a total of one hour and 16 minutes from the time the first plane hits to the time the last of the towers falls, with rescue and recovery efforts going on for weeks afterward. The four planes were American Airlines flight 11, which departed Boston's Logan Airport bound for Los Angeles at 7:59 a.m., United Airlines flight 175, which also left Boston for LA at 8:14, American Airlines flight 77, which left Washington Dulles International Airport at 8:20 on route to LAX, and United Airlines flight 93, which took off from Newark Airport at 8:42 and was headed for San Francisco. American Flight 11 and United 175 were the first to be hijacked that morning, as a message of We Have Some Planes was received by air traffic control at 8.24 from Flight 11, which would then crash into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46. United 175 would crash into the South Tower at 9.03, an event that took place live on television, as by then most networks, both broadcast and cable, had broken into their programming with live coverage of Lower Manhattan. The hijacking of American Flight 77 occurred around 8.51 to 8.54 a.m., and at some point between 9.16 and 9.26, Barbara Olson, a passenger on the plane, placed a call to her husband telling him that the flight had been hijacked. Eleven minutes later, at 9.37, the plane was flown into the west wall of the Pentagon. United grounded its planes at 9.10. The FAA would later ground all the air traffic, although at that point both American 77 and United 93 were still in the air. At 9.59, the South Tower collapsed with a portion of the building above the crash site falling into the lower floors and sending debris both down and out. United 93 was the last of the flights to be taken by the terrorists And at about 9.57 a.m., after placing cell phone and plane-to-ground calls where they learned about other plans, the passengers on board the plane decided to take direct action and stormed both the hijackers and the cockpit. The plane was brought down into the field outside of Shanksville, Pennsylvania, by the terrorists who had taken control of the plane, and everyone on board was killed. Finally, at 10.28 a.m., the North Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed in a similar manner to the South Tower. Other buildings in the World Trade Center complex would be damaged or destroyed as a result of the collapse of the towers. Seven World Trade Center, which sustained a significant amount of collateral damage, collapsed at 5.21 p.m. on September 11th. Five World Trade Center would eventually be torn down due to structural damage. The Marriott World Trade Center Hotel, otherwise known as Three World Trade Center, and St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Church, and the Deutsche Bank building would also eventually be torn down due to damage. A number of other buildings in the area were also badly damaged, but were not torn down. In total, including the 19 terrorists, 2,996 people were killed in the attacks, making it the deadliest terrorist attack in history. In the aftermath of the attack, a massive rescue and recovery effort at all of the sites, much of which was difficult due to shifting debris and fires that were burning in the wreckage, was undertaken. Media coverage of the day began, as I mentioned, after reports that a plane had crashed into the North Tower. As it began, there were conflicting reports that the plane had bitten a small plane. There were even some that said it had landed on top of the tower and not flown into it. Those were quickly corrected, of course, and the country saw the events of the attacks in New York happen live on television. However, during the course of the day in Washington, D.C., there was a lot of confusion as to what exactly was going on. There was no live footage of American Flight 77 hitting the Pentagon, and because the day was clear and breezy, the fires from that crash floated over the Potomac to downtown D.C., which led to reports of possible attacks at the State Department and the old Executive Office building, which is next to the White House. But as the major events of the day ended, reporters stayed on the scene, obviously looking for further developments, and the networks looped the footage, showing United Flight 175 crashing to the South Tower and both buildings collapsing over and over again. All program was suspended for the day, and even a number of cable networks either switched their feed to CNN or put up an announcement that they were going to be off the air for the time being and would return when it was appropriate. Later on the evening of September 11th, President George W. Bush addressed the nation, and members of the Congress gathered on the Capitol steps to sing God Bless America. Newspapers the next day had banner headlines and pictures of the towers burning or collapsing, with some major newspapers even publishing evening editions on the 11th. I'll link to it in the show notes if it's still available, but the museum's website used to have an outstanding gallery of papers from September 12th, something I used to use when I taught journalism. Programming would return to its normal schedule within a few days, although the events expectedly dominated the news cycle for the next several weeks. Within 24 hours, the attacks were connected to the terrorist organization known as Al-Qaeda and its leader, Osama bin Laden, who'd issued a fatwa against the United States in 1993 and was responsible for the bombing of the USS Cole, as well as two embassy attacks in Africa. He was thought to have been in Afghanistan, which is what led to direct United States military action in Afghanistan in October 2001, an operation that, as I record this, is in its final stages and should be wrapping up by September of 2021, which is this year I'm not going to get into the Afghanistan war too much, but I will note that bin Laden was finally killed on May 2, 2011, in an operation by a U.S. Special Forces unit authorized by President Barack Obama. Now, the details of these events are readily available on a number of online sources, but I was pulling from the 9-11 Commission report. This was published and released to the public on June 22, 2004. The result of two years of hearings that were meant to investigate the attacks, as well as ascertain what happened to bring them about and determine what recommendations can be made for the future. The bipartisan commission, which was officially set up on November 27, 2002, was chaired by Thomas Keene, the former Republican governor of New Jersey, with former Democratic Indiana Congressman Lee H. Hamilton serving as vice chair. The commission was comprised of five Republicans and five Democrats, and during the course of their investigation called a number of high-level and highly visible government and administration officials to testify, including President George W. Bush, Vice President Dick Cheney, Secretary of State Colin Powell, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of Homeland Security Tom Ridge, Attorney General John Ashcroft, former President Bill Clinton, former Vice President Al Gore, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, former NSC Counterterrorism Advisor Richard Clark, former Attorney General Janet Reno, and the former Mayor of New York City Rudy Giuliani. The interviews totaled 1,200 people in 10 countries and two and one-half million pages of documents, which were then called into the 592-page report that was released in 2004. A graphic novel version of the 9-11 Commission Report would be released in 2006, written by former editor of Harvey Comics and creator of Richie Rich, Sid Jacobson, with art by comics veteran Early Cologne. I read both versions of the report when doing my research for this episode, and while the prose version of the report is intriguing at times and certainly is a thorough look at the events, the graphic novel version makes the report more accessible, and to both Jacobson and Cologne's credit, does not sensationalize or propagandize the events. Both, by the way, were available at my public library. I would investigate to see whether or not your public library has them and check them out If you get the chance if you can choose one i would recommend the graphic novel adaptation both of them more or less have the same contents they begin with a timeline of offense and get into an overview of u.s intelligence and law enforcement communities following that up with an overview of the history of al-qaeda and the taliban we then get into the known actions of the terrorist and the plan as it came about the missed opportunities prior to 9-11 and then we take a look at the response on the day of the attacks. Finally, each version of the report ends with policy and personnel needs and recommendations. Now, one of the things that's really important to note about the 9-11 Commission report is how it gets into granular detail about all of this subject matter. And it begins that right away by looking at the events of the day. Later on in the report, the Commission details how the response from various on-the-ground agencies – New York Police Department, Fire Department of New York, Port Authority Police, etc., unfolded in real time. They also detail the inadequate communication systems between these agencies and within the buildings in the World Trade Center complex that impeded coordination of rescue attempts and operations. The graphic novel version of the report uses its format to its advantage in this regard, by the way, by providing a fold-out timeline of the events of the day, which is broken into segments for each of the four planes and what happened to them. It is an outstanding representation of the simultaneous events of that morning. Each version of the report has a thorough look at what happened in the planning stages of the plot, based on intelligence gathered after the fact from a number of sources, including the captured, quote, 20th hijacker, Zacharias Massawi, and one of the architects of the plot, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM as they abbreviate him in the report. Bin Laden, as noted, was one of the masterminds, and we get a history of al-Qaeda, Its association with the Taliban and how bin Laden and KSM had recruited the men who carried out the attack, then sent them to the United States, where they attended flight schools during a time period that was well before September 11th, 2001. The organization had been emboldened by the lack of a forceful response to the bombing of the USS Cole, as well as the embassy attacks in Africa. And once that is established, the commission goes into detail as to how they were able to conduct the attack. The biggest asset to al-Qaeda wound up being the poor interagency relationships between federal law enforcement, intelligence, and national security, which they detail thoroughly. I'm going to editorialize a little bit here and say that when I first heard of the details in the report upon its publication in 2004 and then read it earlier this year, I was and remain unsurprised that government inefficiency was a contributor to the attack's effectiveness. The United States federal government, especially its bureaucracy, has a reputation for being bloated and inefficient. Okay, bloated and inefficient is the very definition of government bureaucracy. And while that may not be true in some areas, the idea that the NSA, FBI, and CIA did not communicate very well and actually had interagency rivalries is not surprising at all. Furthermore, One thing that we've all come to know since then, but is worth pointing out here, is that those agencies were not looking for this particular method of attack. Most of the intelligence was focused on possible bomb threats. They had foiled a major plot, known as the Millennium Plot, in 1999. But the fact remains that the actions of these terrorists and al-Qaeda as a whole were either missed or ignored prior to 9-11. Most famously, there was a memo on August 6, 2001, in the President's Daily Briefing, or PDB, about bin Laden planning to attack the United States. This memo, when released to the press in 2004, was used in many cases as a smoking gun of sorts, especially to bolster claims that the Bush administration was too focused on Iraq to pay enough attention to bin Laden. Now, there is definitely evidence for that um, because there were members of the Bush administration, especially Paul Wolfowitz, who were gunning for Iraq the moment that the administration took office in January of '01. especially since that within days of the attacks, Wolfowitz was asking about whether or not 9-11 could be tied to Iraq. And we did certainly see a concerted propaganda effort to tie the attacks to Saddam Hussein in the 2002-2003 lead up to that war. But the August 6 memo was too vague in its language to be the smoking begun that told us that Bush let things happen in some way. And while there were other reports that were more specific to the actions the terrorists would take, they would come too late for an effective response. In short, while some of the lead up to 9-11 is speculative, at least where the terrorist actions are concerned, the report does provide an intriguing look at how a group like Al Qaeda could plan this operation right under our noses. And the commission's bipartisan makeup serves as the report as well, as they are critical of both the Clinton and Bush administrations, while at least in my opinion, not being political. I, I say at least in my opinion, because out of curiosity, I read the one star reviews of the 9 11 commission report on Amazon, and well, they're entertaining. Anyway, another intriguing section of the report is about readiness, and as far as readiness is concerned, the commission portrays two contrasting pictures, one at the Pentagon in Arlington and the other at the World Trade Center in New York. The Pentagon is shown as a way of what readiness and responsiveness works. Of course, while civilians were working in the building, it's still a military facility, so it's not as much foot traffic of the general public. The building is significantly much lower to the ground than the Twin Towers, so there was not as much debris strewn about. And the structure of the building, rings upon rings of concrete and steel, as well as the fact that the west side was at the tail end of a massive renovation and therefore had not been kind of refilled with people moving back into their offices, lessened the number of casualties within the building. Not counting the airplane passengers and terrorists, the number dead at the Pentagon was 125. Coordination between first-response units was quick. That also contributed to the lessening of casualties. The World Trade Center is another story. The report goes into what was done and what was not done to update communication systems and emergency procedures following the 1993 bombing. There was a radio system that did not function properly. Miscommunication as to when to evacuate and what stairwells were clear. And this added to the number of people who did not make it out of the buildings, but could have. Of course, we can have speculation run rampant when hindsight is involved, but I think it is accurate to say that the inability of first responder organizations to effectively communicate and coordinate in the midst of the attacks did hinder the response. That's not to take away from the valiant and heroic efforts of the first responders at the World Trade Center before it collapsed, or those who led the rescue and recovery efforts after that that pulled 20 people from the rubble alive but surely we can separate the government and management apparatus from those on the front line, so to speak. And like the national security failures there, this would end up being a failure due to bureaucracy inefficiency and some interagency tensions. In the end, the 9-11 commission made a number of recommendations about homeland security, emergency response, intelligence, foreign policy, and non efforts. They found the Bush administration to be woefully lacking in their implementation of the recommendations. But while we did see this nonfiction chronicle of the September 11th attacks published in both prose and graphic novel format, those came out in 2004 and 2006. In 2001, the event was unfolding in real time, right in front of us on television, and especially on the internet, where it was where a number of people took to learn about the events as well as to share their stories. I suppose that here is where I would tell mine. I think that all of us who are old enough to remember it have a story many of their stories being similar. the time, I was living in Arlington, Virginia, in an apartment building in Crystal City that was two metro stops down from the Pentagon and one metro stop away from National Airport. One entrance to the Pentagon was a little more than half a mile away from the building. I was working at a consulting firm in Bethesda, Maryland, which meant that each day I had a 45-minute metro ride. Amanda and I were living together at the time. Uh, We weren't engaged yet. And she was staying at her parents' house that morning, helping out down there because her mom had just had surgery. So she wound up seeing the events as they happened live on television while I was stuck at work and found out about the first plane hitting the tower via an email from one of my friends from college. We didn't have a working television in the office, so I wound up getting on the Washington Post website. And what they did was shut down the entire rest of the site to handle the traffic to a story they were constantly updating. Live streaming was not as seamless in 2001 as it is now, so while they did provide as much footage as possible, I found that the site's traffic was often getting in the way and wound up relying on both story updates from the post as well as emails from my friends. In fact, it wasn't until lunchtime that a few people in my department decided to head to the restaurant next door to my building to see what was going on, and we finally saw all of the footage. I honestly can't tell you exactly how I reacted. I remember making sure I got in touch with Amanda and with my parents. But otherwise, I just sat at my desk and continued to scroll and refresh and email my friends. Oh, I do remember someone from the company asking me to complete a PowerPoint I was working on because he had a meeting the next day. I think I did it without question, because I needed something else to look at for 30 minutes, and I couldn't get home anyway. They'd closed the metro at that point, so I was stuck in my office until I could either get on a train or bum a ride off of someone to get me back to Virginia. The metro would eventually reopen in the afternoon, I think around like three o'clock or so. It was nearly empty, and nobody on either of the trains I took was saying a word. I remembered that the yellow line which went across the river, was not running to the Pentagon because the government had closed all the railroad bridges out of fear of another attack. So I took the blue line because that went under the river, and uh, that goes through Arlington National Cemetery before it reaches the Pentagon. And I remember two things vividly about it. First, there was a Navy officer on board the train who disembarked at the Pentagon station. We shared, well, a, a look, I guess is the best way to put it. Like I said, there was barely anyone else on the train, and Those who were weren't saying anything, but I don't know, it was just a a moment of nonverbal communication that I've never forgotten. The other thing I remember very vividly was the smell. The Pentagon station is not located on the side of the building that was hit by the plane. It's on an adjacent side. So there wasn't any damage to the station, and parts of it were actually closed due to the extensive renovations going on anyway. But the building at that point was still very much on fire, and it smelled like it. And not that nice sense of fireplaces, maybe burning wood that you get on a crisp fall day, but this acrid smell that just singed your nostrils. It permeated the entire area around the building for a good radius of at least a half mile to a mile, which just includes where my apartment building was housed. So I stayed the night at Amanda's parents' house, which was located about 30 minutes south of us. And that drive down I-95 was eerie. The radio just had news playing and there were really no other cars on the road. That's completely unheard of in Northern Virginia on a weekday afternoon. The next morning I drove back home and aside from having to show my ID to a uniformed officer to get into my apartment building because we were so close to the Pentagon, I remember seeing the wreckage because I-395, which runs from the Beltway and the Springfield Mixing Bowl in Virginia all the way to uh, the the 14th Street Bridge into Washington, D.C., runs alongside the Pentagon. And there's a point right around the exit for Columbia Pike and Washington Boulevard that the building comes into sight. So I came up that way and the destroyed and still-on-fire side of the building was facing me. So I went into work. I got in late in the middle of a huge all-company conference call where the CEO was giving a pep talk. You know, to this day, I'm a little annoyed about this. I'm a little annoyed that my company didn't just tell us all to stay home. We could return to work on the 13th or something. I mean, I had some good conversations with coworkers, you know, and at least there's that, but... In times like that, I'm not looking to be inspired by a talk from my CEO, the CEO of a consulting firm. It was about as disingenuous as Bush telling us all to go shopping. Anyway, that's pretty much my story, which is nowhere near exciting and probably even worth retelling as others, except that I'm sitting behind a mic right now. I knew at least one person who happened to be home in his apartment building in Arlington and saw the plane hit the Pentagon. I knew others who were frantically calling friends and loved ones who worked in downtown Manhattan. I knew classmates who lost family members. It was all something that I could remember doing my best to try to process while also trying to support those around me who needed it. And yes, we were eventually able to continue our lives and things slowly got back to normal. Even the Pentagon was quietly rebuilt, with a flag draped over the area that was hit. Construction began shortly after the fires were put out, and I remember many times driving to our friend's apartments on the other side of 395 and passing the building, marking the progress they were making. It was, in a way, a healing experience. But as mundane as that story is, the real-life individual stories that are told about the day are just as important as the media coverage or the 9-11 Commission report. I probably don't need to tell you that those are what makes history vivid and real to the average person. And the places where you can go to get the stories of 9-11 are media outlets like magazines, but also the internet, which was coming into its own as a medium around this time. At the top of the show, I mentioned Sarah Bunting's essay for Thou Art With Us, which was published on Tomato Nation, her website, which was more of a regular essay type of site or a column than a blog, Blogs, of which I have had several over the past couple of decades, were becoming the next hot thing at the time, and mostly were co- sort of first draft of life type of stuff, you know, live journal, that sort of thing. Bunting's work is way more polished, it's thought through, it's, it's way more writer, actual writer than, than your average live journal was in 2001, and I think that's why the essay endures. Her story is of attending a conference in lower Manhattan that day and being several blocks from the Trade Center, avoiding the destruction of the building and making her way back to her apartment while in complete shock as to what happened. She's helped along by a man named Don and eventually does reach home, then heads to her parents' house in New Jersey, and that's the portion I read at the top of the show. There are, in addition to Bundling's essay, a number of other stories that are accessible and preserved via the September 11th Digital Archive, who, according to the homepage, uses electronic media to collect, preserve, and present the history of September 11th, 2001 and its aftermath. The archive contains more than 150,000 digital items, a tally that includes more than 40,000 emails and other electronic communications, more than 40,000 firsthand stories, and more than 15,000 digital images. In September 2003, the Library of Congress accepted the archive into its collection, an event that both ensured the archive's long-term preservation and marked the library's first major digital acquisition. This is one of those resources that you'll get sucked into because it's very much raw footage in a sense. It's invaluable in that regard. I wound up reading a preserved email chain called Everyone Check In. That was, again, a simple exchange from a group of people, but this is how so many were communicating with one another at the moment, especially those who were near the events or were unsure of who was going to still be alive. There are many, many photographs of the same images from the different angles of In and around Manhattan, artwork commemorating the attacks both immediately afterward and on the anniversary. I could spend a lot more time going through all of the individual pieces on the September 11th digital archive, but I wanted to move on to a couple of other worthwhile pieces that examine an aspect of the day. The first is an issue of The Spectator, Stuyvesant High School student newspaper. If you're unfamiliar with Stuyvesant High School, it is one of the most prestigious public high schools in New York City. Moreover, it's located a mere half mile away from the World Trade Center. At the time of the attacks, school was in session. Most high schools, especially in 2001, began classes around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And the day obviously got interrupted by the attacks. The Spectator as a publication has a prestigious history among high school newspapers. And members of the staff took to covering what was going on as best as they could especially Ethan Moses, who was a senior at the time and a staff photographer. The issue was published on October 2nd and then later reprinted by the New York Times. While it is not available on the Times website or the Spectator's website anymore, you can find the PDF link by the Wayback Machine. So I'll link to that in the show notes. This is a publication that I have shared in my English classes a number of times over the years and shared with my journalism classes back when I was still a journalism teacher. The voices of young people aren't always in the forefront of events like this, and what they do is give a unique perspective. There are articles about the attacks, people's reactions, and the memorials that were set up in the weeks after. But there's also some reporting about how the school itself handled the day, from rumors that abounded as events were unfolding to how the administration had to act quickly to ensure the students' safety. I don't think that the average person was thinking about this when all of that was going down. I know that there were some people who were showing up at schools to pull their kids out, even if they were miles away. At least that's what my dad said, because he was teaching at the time. I was not. I didn't start teaching in two, until 2005. But I have talked to colleagues about it, and they have stories about not being able to tell their kids what was going on, but then handling all of the dismissals. To have an inside look at the emergency preparedness and the actions taken at a high school right by the towers adds another layer to the story, as does the fact that the school is used for temporary housing for emergency workers. During this time, the Stuy students were sent to Brooklyn Technical High School, and there's a story about the displacement felt by the student body and their parents. In fact, the entire thing is worth a read because of its role as a specific sort of time capsule and an illustration of the commitment of its student journalists who really show professionalism in their writing and their coverage, as well as maturity in their perspective. This is exemplified in the short essay by photographer Ethan Moses that accompanies a photograph of the Twin Towers wreckage on page two of the issue. He says, I felt guilty for days after running from the dust cloud of the Second World Trade Center tower collapsing, Guilty that on top of being so lucky as to escape with my life, I had the nerve to shoot pictures of the demise of thousands. I spoke with my father's friend from Bronx Science, who is now a photographer for Con Ed. Both of us, like many others who photographed the collapse of the World Trade Center, did so with tears in our eyes. I told him that I was ashamed to be taking pictures, but he said that it was our responsibility. He told me that through our photographs, even more than our writing, the world will remember what would happen on September 11, 2001. I told my father that I would venture out with my camera to take pictures. I felt sorry that I had moped around the house and wandered lower Manhattan for the last four days without taking any pictures. I felt guilty that I had let the sorrow of my fellow New Yorkers as well as my family go unrecorded. I felt the responsibility to take pictures because I was there. I ran from the debris cloud. And even more horribly, thought my father, mother, and many family friends were inside or in adjacent buildings. I told my father that for the sake of my children and my children's children, he should do the same and go help to record history. He said that he had been in bed crying for the past two days. He couldn't watch the news and couldn't look at the pictures. I've always known he wasn't able to look at pictures of the Holocaust or the Vietnam War without wincing and turning away. This is because he saw the pictures of Vietnam in World War II. They conveyed to him at least a little of the trauma that those who were there lived through. The reason we should be taking pictures is so that 30 or 60 years from now, people will see them and have to turn away. To all of you, if you can bring yourself to do it, please take some pictures that will capture the present suffering and unity in America. Write about it. Make sure no one ever forgets. Before I move on to the next part of the episode, I'd like to point out that one of the worst places, ironically, to learn about the history of 9-11 is in a history textbook. Now, I guess it's no secret that history textbooks are pretty objectively substandard in the way they actually tell the story of history. There's a lot of reasons for this, most of which are beyond the scope of this episode. But one of the biggest contributors is that history textbooks tend to be written for breadth rather than depth. So if you were to look at 9-11 in a U.S. history textbook, you wouldn't find much beyond maybe a couple of paragraphs. At least that's what I discovered when I looked at a couple of American history textbooks used in the high school where I teach. One, called The Americans, is distributed to our more general U.S. history classes. The other one is called American History, Connecting with the Past, which I believe is for the APUSH course. Both uh, have the general facts down, the narrative mostly being about the bravery of the first responders of the towers. Neither have an exact number of those who perished, as well as the number of terrorists. They say about 3,000 people died, which is not false, but also not entirely accurate, considering we have an official count. James Lowen gets into more detail about this in the updated edition of his book, Lies My Teacher Told Me. It's a great examination of American history texts and how much they misinterpret or get flat-out wrong. He points out that a number of American history textbooks, among them the Americans, blow over the facts in the way that I describe, but he's more critical of the way they also give short shrift to the reason behind the attacks, in some cases almost ignoring the question of why. The why, of course, is the most important question, especially when you're teaching a course that is geared toward older students, because it's the question that encourages critical thinking and examination of the events beyond just what is presented. I realize I teach English, but the skills of research and literary analysis that you learn in my class are not that far removed from historical analysis. Research is research, and no matter the subject, you should know how to find information as well as determine its veracity, maybe even challenge it, if it's appropriate to do so. With literary analysis, we're often looking at how authors use certain literary devices or other methods of storytelling, why that's important to the larger point of statement they're making about society and human nature. I'm not sure you're doing exactly this in history class, but I can't imagine that you are ignoring the relationship between events, people, and even countries throughout a span of time. After all, so much of history is relationships and cycles. And if you don't examine that why, you never understand it. In fact, history without critical examination becomes, in the very least, a bunch of answers in the test that you end up forgetting, and at worst, whitewash propaganda. I'm writing and recording this over the summer of 2021, but I'm honestly curious as to what my students think about the education they have received regarding 9-11. Years ago, when I would do a unit about uh, 9-11 in English class, we'd take a critical look at history textbooks and talk about the need for deeper research. In fact, I would have an assignment where students were asked to rewrite the 9-11 entry uh, in a textbook so that it was a little more accurate. But I wonder if they're even getting that basic lesson, especially since 9-11 is only 20 years old. Because they might be getting the type of lessons that, like, we got about recent history back in the 90s. You know, Rush looks at the event that is given at the end of the year because everybody's behind, the students are all checked out, the adults assume we already know what happened because they know what happened. So I wonder if that's what happens with my students. I wanted to spend this next portion talking about two pieces that are removed in location from the 9-11 attacks, but they still represent the day because they are about being stuck and trying to get home. The first is actually no longer available. It's uh, called Dark September, a 21st Century Odyssey. This is a travelogue from a Geocities page that was created in late 2001 by Carol Haverty. At least that's what I... I think the name of the writer was based on the URL and context clues. And it details her road trip from Montreal to her home in San Francisco on September, in September 2001 after the attacks. Uh, she was stuck in Canada on the 11th and with no word on when flights would get in the air again, decided to rent a car and drive home. It's a story that I actually found via Tomato Nation Sarah Bunting site back in 2001 or 2002, and in June 2003, I decided that it would be a great idea to print it all out and put it in a file folder that I labeled 9-11 Reading, which was a personal collection of articles and artifacts that were more or less contemporaneous to the events instead of the more slickly produced remembrance pieces that I was dreading having to see on television or in magazines. I'm sorry if that sounds insensitive, but the artifice of commemoration tends to rub me the wrong way. Anyway, the site is no longer active, most GeoCities sites aren't, although you can find it on the internet archive and I'll link to that in the show notes because it's very much worth reading. Unfortunately, the pictures that she had were not available. And Like I said, Haverty started out in Canada and drove a route that took her through New York State into the upper Midwest and across Utah and northern Nevada until she finally arrived at her home in the Bay Area. From reading it, I get the impression that the piece was originally done as a sort of email newsletter that was then copied to the GeoCity site because at the beginning of it, she mentions creating a website at some point. At any rate, its nature as a real-time travel diary, make it a great artifact. She details the image of those first few weeks after 9-11 throughout the country where you saw a lot of American flags flying but does not gloss over the fear that a number of people felt, as well as the amount of aggressive warmongering that was going on in certain talk radio realms, which contributed to some of that fear. Much of the population was afraid something would happen again, and the Muslim population of the country lived in fear of hate crimes, a number of which happened in the days after the attacks. So it's an accurate representation of what was happening, and one that also speaks to the loneliness of such a journey. Haverty doesn't have a traveling companion. While she does interact with the rental car clerks and the employees at some of the places she stops to rest or eat, she doesn't really have stories to tell about any people. There are large segments of her trip where she barely sees a person and spends time commenting on the landscape, fully realizing America's vastness as she travels west. I reread this for what's probably the 10th or 11th time in the past 20 years. It did make me think about driving on I-95 South and Northern Virginia on that afternoon. And Like I said, it was deserted. It's like everybody had vanished. I listened to the news on the radio that was just repeating the same information over and over. And I did my best to concentrate on driving so I wouldn't get overwhelmed. And overwhelmed by both the news and how eerie everything felt. In this travelogue of hers, I pick up moments where she's thinking similar things. Much of the first few days of her travels are spent during that time immediately after the attacks. where We're still trying to figure out the, what getting back to normal meant, right? And by the time she is done, that pause is over. Or at least that particular pause. Because the attacks on September 11th are rightfully a demarcation in America when it comes to our history, our policy, and our society. One of the last things she listens to as she heads towards San Francisco is a speech by George W. Bush where he, quote, celebrated the strength of the American people and called for resolve in facing the future. But the subtext spelled the sunset, the end of life, innocent, and the golden age of we have known it. We condemn the Taliban regime. Thud. It will not end until every group is found and defeated. When will that be? There were many brave and strong words, but no tangible solutions or milestone. And the truth that I heard is that we're going to go to war for a very long time with an enemy that is, well, us and our shadows. Buckle up, kids, we're going for a ride. The years afterward, would see what she's talking about there play out in vivid detail. The final pullout from Afghanistan happening as I speak, an effort that's had its successes, but Also, its lack of success, the evaluation of which are beyond the scope of this episode, as is the discussion of whether or not we ever had that conversation with ourselves about who we are as a society versus who we perceive we are as a society. How much did we learn and how much were we taken advantage of by those who sought to use the tragedy as an opportunity to advance their own agenda? And what does it say about us that whatever camaraderie and kindness that we often hear spoken of in the days immediately following the attacks seem to have been a blip or mythological? That's what I think about when I consider the last piece I want to look at for this episode. And that's Jim DeFiti's book, The Day the World Came to Town, 9-11 in Gander, Newfoundland. If you're not familiar with the story about Gander, Newfoundland in September of 2001, I'll give you a quick summary. So the moment that the FAA grounded every flight in the United States, they did so immediately, meaning that any plane in the air had to find the nearest runway that could accommodate it and land. DeFiti, by the way, gave a talk at a conference years ago where he praised the efforts of the country's air traffic controllers because not only did they get every single plane to land, they did so without a single accident, Consider how many planes were in the air at that moment, and it is awesomely impressive. Anyway, at that point, there were a number of transatlantic flights in the air, and there's a point of no return when you're flying across the Atlantic where you have to keep going because you won't have enough fuel if you turn around and try to go back to where you came from. And um, the pilot has to make that decision. When they, when they do that. And, and the United States was closed. So a number of flights did just head back to Europe or wherever they're coming from, but a number of them were forced to land at various airports in Canada, and one of them was Gander. This, uh, this is a city in the middle of Newfoundland, which had an airport built during the Second World War. It had been a midway point and in refueling stops for bombers and other transport planes flying to Europe from North America. Remember, World War II is prior to the uh, jet engine age. This small, relatively poor town in central Newfoundland had an international airport that would accommodate jumbo jets, so a number of those jets were rerouted and they landed in Gander. Not only that, the Red Cross and other organizations sprung into action on the ground to make sure that the people on the planes were all accounted for and taken care of, and the people in the area sprung into action. A number of them temporary housed the plane people, as they called them, and really treated them like family because the hotels have been set aside for the pilots and the crew of the planes for them to decompress. Defeati's book was used as the basis of a musical called Come From Away. Um, The book is still available. I'll link to a place where you can buy it in the show notes because it's a wonderful book filled with stories of humanity and one that I was eager to read because this is where my grandmother was born and raised until her family immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1920s. That particular heritage of mine in Newfoundland goes back to the early 1800s, when my great-great-great-great-grandfather sailed there from England. The hospitality that's shown by the people as gander is what I gather to be the norm from Newfoundland's people, something my sister can confirm because she's actually been there And yes, I'm still jealous of that. But there are stories in the book that are sad, that are heartwarming, that are funny. There are stories about how those who were on the planes did what they could to repay the people who took care of them. Like the board of a firm who operated out of the outdated computer lab of the local high school and then paid to have the lab upgraded after they left. My favorite story, uh, the CEO of Hugo Boss, who had been on his way to New York Fashion Week, because Fashion Week was the week after, stayed, he stayed in the local high school gymnasium and uh, one of the employees of of the Hugo Boss Store in St. John's, which is the capital of, uh, Newfoundland on the coast, heard that he was in Gander and he, he rushed like crazy to get this man all sorts of clothes and high-end, like, charcuterie and food and things. He drove overnight into Gander to deliver it to the guy and, and the CEO he's like, you know, I can get you a, he told the guy I can get you a private plane out of here, we can get you back to Paris or wherever else you need to go. And, uh, the uh, CEO of Hugo Boss actually refused the gifts. He said, you know, except for underwear because he was complaining about the underwear. is like, you know, I have my limits. But really, here's a man who has like an enormous amount of privilege and status, and he could have flexed that and knew how inappropriate it was to do that. It's a moment of humanity, you know, in a society that was and still is very cynical. Of course, we have every right to be cynical, especially considering the number of times that even our greatest moments of humanity and compassion have been manipulated to someone else's personal, political, and commercial gain. But it's important to remember that, as much as it's important to remember that raw feeling of shock, the disgust at those who used the moment to commit hate crimes, and the sadness we feel thinking of those who were lost that day and because of the wars waged in its name for years afterward. So, thanks for coming along in this first part of this mini series. In part two, I will be looking at comic books and graphic novels, specifically The Amazing Spider Man, Volume 2, Number 36, and the tribute comics A Moment of Silence, 9 11 Emergency Relief, 9 11 Artists Respond, and the DC Comics 9 11 Tribute Collection. Until then, I wanted to let you know that I am setting aside a portion of the final episode of the series, episode six, to answer any feedback I get on the series. So please drop me a line at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or get in touch with me on social media. Not only would I like to hear your feedback, but I'd like to hear your stories, either what you remember about that day or the thoughts that you have about it 20 years later. And as always, thanks for listening and take care. This has been 9-11 in Popular Culture, which is presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. The producer and narrator is Tom Pannerese. Background music is by Sanji, MD Sabir Khan, Royalty Free Music, and Dick DeRitter, all of which are used via the Creative Commons license. Other clips used in this series are done so under fair use. Show notes are available at popcultureaffidavit.com. Emails can be sent to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thank you very much for listening.